You're listening to a podcast from JNIS. Today I'd like to thank Dr. Chuck Kerber for speaking with me. Uh, Chuck had a series of three articles published in the January issue of JNIS that were editor choice articles, and the articles were concerning uh, a relatively new compound, nucleolate, which shows promise for treatment of uh, barrieraneurysms. The articles talked about in vivo testing, in vitro animal testing, and also early uh, human experience. Chuck, thanks for agreeing to talk to me. I had a couple questions, you know, I wanted to ask you about Nucleolate and about some of the work that you published. Can you tell me a little bit about Nucleolate and what properties of the compound make it uh, well-suited as an aneurysm occlusion device? May I give you a little history first? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. Cyanoacrylates, or medical-grade tissue adhesives, came into our knowledge uh, probably in the early 60s. Some work done at uh, the NIH hospitals in D.C. showed that you could use uh, cyanoacrylates, which had only been invented you know, 15 or 20 years before, as a tissue adhesive. And on a few patients in Vietnam, they sprayed pure cyanoacrylates into some untreatable uh, solid organs uh, that were bleeding, liver and spleen, for example. And those patients did did well, and that got the ball rolling in, in this field. A friend of mine, Paul Zanetti, a neurosurgeon at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, started doing some work with tissue adhesives, and he was working on joining small blood vessels, microanastomosis, using uh, their tissue adhesive, which at the time was called bucrylate. Okay. He, he gave me a, uh, a batch of that after he had used it to treat an anterior communicating artery aneurysm. Uh, and he did that by doing a frontal craniotomy and putting a 30-gauge needle into the dome of the aneurysm and simply filling it up blindly with their bucrylate. So I started using it on brain AVMs. And the truth is, it was, it was not appropriate. Sinoacrylates are incredibly good adhesive agents, and it wasn't long before all of us were gluing catheters into brains. The property that we wanted was that it changed from a liquid to a solid instantly, like, like within a second, upon touching blood or endothelium. So modification number one was done by Larry Cromwell and I back in the 70s, late 70s, when we made it visible, made it radio-opaque. Okay. It also changed its properties some that it was not a a really wonderful adhesive. After that, I had been totally unsuccessful getting the manufacturers to change the properties of the device, and then about oh, 15 years ago, decided to try it myself. All of the research after that was first finding a suitable monomer, something that would cause mild inflammation but not progress to the point of necrosis or pus formation, be a mild adhesive so it sticks to vessel walls, but also be rubbery and be of viscosity low enough that we could put it through a microcatheter. Let me change the subject a little bit here. If you want to treat aneurysms, you can look at most of the morphology and 
find that a significant number are not spherical. They have peculiar shapes. And so it would be nice to have a device that would conform to those shapes and be able to stay in the aneurysm, even if there were a wide neck, and a liquid fills those criteria. Okay. So when you're injecting the nucleate, I notice that you do it with um, balloon occlusion. Is that to keep the agent in the aneurysm, or what's the purpose of the um, balloon occlusion? Yes. You can inject a nucleate uh, liquid into the center part of an aneurysm, and it polymerizes rapidly enough that it becomes a sphere. Okay. So you don't need the balloon to keep it in the aneurysm. Huh, okay. The almost perfect paradigm is to look at those movies of lava flowing down the mountainside in Hawaii. It's kind of a liquid in the center, but on the surface it has cooled and is solid, and it flows by opening up tiny cracks and fissures. And in that way, you create a sphere that then conforms to the size of the aneurysm. But when you get to the neck, that sphere then um, protrudes into the flowing blood and it causes more turbulence. If you believe that turbulence is the cause of the aneurysm, creating more turbulence may not be a good idea. So Mm -hmm. we put the balloon in to create a smooth interface at the neck of the aneurysm so that you have, when you're finished with the treatment, a smooth passage for the flow of blood. I see. And then there is some problem, though, if if the balloon should happen to rupture, uh, correct? Oh, balloon rupture is a catastrophic event. On the occasions that we've we've had balloon rupture, uh, and there have been four of them so far in our patient population, uh, one of them was so catastrophic that it disrupted the polymerizing mass, and the, the liquid quickly polymerized downstream and caused a, a fatal infarction. And another one, it caused a permanent infarct, and the other two were asymptomatic. When balloons fail, they fail at a pinpoint first, okay. usually in the mid-body, and this jet of high-pressure uh, contrast agent it squirts into the center of the aneurysm and disrupts oh. the polymerizing process. Stephen M. Basie uh, and I published a paper uh, using um, some of the available standard stents, not even flow diverters, uh, across the neck of experimental um, benchtop aneurysms, and the nucleate comes out and touches the the uh, stent and stops there. So adjunctive stents, I think, will be a great increase in um, the, the safety factor. Okay. One of the articles that you published was on animal studies with the agent. Can you talk a little bit about the experimental design and uh, why you chose that particular model and uh, some of the results with that? I um, misinterpreted some of the literature, and uh, Dr. Altes gets truly the the real credit for uh, the particular aneurysm model that I used. It's an elastase digestion model. That model has been severely criticized. It's not being physiologic, but the truth is, from our point of view, it is physiologic. It is an almost perfect 
model to replicate the pathologic flow dynamics that we see in humans. So the problems with rabbits is that, A, they're small, but the model itself has proven robust. Mm-hmm. As far as the histological response that uh, you saw in, in the animal models, can you review that? And were there any unexpected findings that you had? Actually, we were fairly pleased. What we wanted was a device that caused mild inflammation because mild inflammation is the first stage of any healing process. And we were looking for permanence. One thing that we searched for specifically was cleft formation because some liquid embolic agents, when they when they uh, change state, um, contract a bit. So we didn't want any clefts forming along the wall of the device. And third, we spent a lot of time trying to make this material an open pore sponge so that we could get fibroblastic and collagen ingrowth to make it more permanent because eventually all cyanoacrylates get hydrolyzed and absorbed. And then I know that a lot of your other research has centered on blood flow dynamics. Have you had any opportunity to to look at the perianeurismal effect of this agent? Just thinking about, especially in the humans, where you know you may have a dysplastic vessel to begin with, and what some of the longer-term effects as far as hemodynamic consequences on on the adjacent vessel might be. So far on our follow-ups, and we're now out to some two years, we've had no parent vessel occlusions. Okay. As far as benchtop uh, research, yes, we have looked at pre- and post-treatment flows, and yes, the turbulent flow is gone, but that research is not vigorous enough yet to uh, uh, try publication, and, and that's our next project. As far as as long-term in in humans, we don't have anything beyond two or three years, so it's difficult to say. And until I can get an MR scanner that has phased response, I cannot do good flow studies Mm -hmm. in, in humans, so I'm kind of stuck at that point. I could sure use some help from our readers, though. Okay. You mentioned uh, the experience in human population. Can you briefly summarize where you're at with that? We have now uh, CE Mark approval to sell this device in Europe. Oh, okay. Um, and we are going very, very slowly in training just a few prominent physicians. Though the device is pretty easy to use, we have a really very good system of treating aneurysms right now, the Guglielmi coils and their their progeny. So only patients early on who cannot be treated by standard of care devices would be appropriate. And I'm trying to be as cautious as possible uh, getting this in the hands of of physicians uh, until everybody's well-trained in its use. Well, that sounds reasonable. Are you working on a study over in Europe uh, and then hope to use that for FDA purposes? <laughs> you may not be able to talk to me about that. I, I, I don't know. Sure, I can. We have stopped trying to get FDA approval. Okay. We just don't have the money in this little company to do that. Our next steps with with this 
will be to expand our experience in Europe. Okay. We have identified a balloon manufacturer who has made specialty balloons for us that are tolerant to the uh, use that we put them to, and we are now waiting to get balloons and uh, final OKs from the European uh, regulatory agencies. Great. It sounds exciting. <laughs> I, well, I may have to move to Europe. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm hopeful that a day will come that, that our Food and Drug Administration recognizes how many people are walking around with this device in them and allows us to to get an approval through. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to thank Chuck for spending time um, with me today to, to discuss Nucleate, the progress with this agent, you know, I think is, is extremely exciting. And you can find Chuck's series of articles again in the January issue of JNIS. And so uh, thank you, Chuck. My pleasure. Thanks, Rob. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com. 